most of the time these pop-ups are because something happens to me during the week and I go, I really want to talk about that. And then I look at the calendar on Patreon and I think, oh, I'm not going to be able to do it for three or four months. So pop-ups happen as a way of me getting things off my chest. And what happened this week is I was in conversation with someone and they were inviting me to participate in a group in which people would share their truth. And I was invited to share my truth uh, and what I think about particular things that are happening in the political world, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, this was interesting to me, okay, because I was like, as a good old fundamentalist as I am, I'm like, I'm not interested in my truth. I'm interested in the truth, right? <laughs> um, but of course, a lot of people are very nervous about the truth um, because they see that as being incredibly damaging. People believe that they know the truth and then will kill for it. So there is this you know, tendency to talk about, well, let's all talk about our truths um, and our different ways of narrating the world and uh, come to better understandings of how we, we narrate and have our own personal truths. And you have your truth and I have my truth and we can out-narrate each other or we can understand the narratives of each other, but these are attempts to explain something that is ultimately beyond us. <clears throat> Um, and I want to critique that <laughs> um, and I want to kind of show uh, that perhaps we can hit on the truth um, and so that's that's what we're going to do today so I'm going to take my time I'm going to build an argument very very carefully really outlining some of the work of Hegel but before I do I just want to give like a a really clear example of what I'm talking about so the clearest philosophical example is Immanuel Kant um, but there's also a parable, so I'll start with a parable. It's this parable that comes from uh, either Buddhist, Hindu, or Jainist kind of background, and you'll all know it. It's the six blind men uh, hear about a thing called an elephant, and they encounter this elephant, and they're trying to work out what the elephant is. So one of the blind men uh, feels the trunk and says, oh, an elephant's like a snake. And the other feels the leg and says, oh, this is like a pillar. Another feels the side of the elephant and says, no, 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 it's like a wall. Another feels the tail and says, oh, it's like a snake. And another feels the tusk and says, oh, no, no, it's like a spear, right? So of course the idea is the elephant is reality, is the universe, is in philosophy what's called the in itself or the noumenal. And we, through our intuition, our intuition meaning our senses and through our rational categories, uh, the way we filter that information uh, in terms of various what are called transcendental categories, we come to an interpretation of reality. But that interpretation is partial and it is connected to that reality. I mean, we are touching it, but again, it's through our senses and through our rational faculties. Basically, we're always encountering reality through a lens. We never experience the ruse as it is. But as we are, as Anais Nin says beautifully, you know, we, we do not experience the world as it is, but as we are. Now, Immanuel Kant is the most kind of sophisticated philosophical expression of this idea, where he basically shows that um, we have, he calls them transcendental categories, but we have these filters through which reality comes to us. 
and we don't have access to reality outside of these filters, outside of intuition and these transcendental categories. There's 12 of them. Um, and so for, for Kant, he's not a relativist, although some people, bad readings of Kant make him relativist, like Steve Hicks or something, but um, he's not a relativist. He's wanting to have a firm foundation for the sciences and for a type of knowledge that he calls synthetic a priori knowledge. But he also says there's a difference between the phenomenal world, which is the world we experience, the world we inhabit, the world that filters through our lenses, and then the world as it is in itself, that we cannot penetrate because we're always partial, we're always perspectival. Um, so there's always a sense in which what really is, is inaccessible to us. <clears throat> now, when you hear that, um, what Kant called the Copernican revolution of thought, where we realize that uh, the world that we think we're experiencing um, actually filters and we're experiencing something of ourselves and our own faculties and our own way of being, right? <clears throat> when you think about this, it's hard to get around. You go, okay, you know, how, do you, how do you speak of the truth, right? This seems pretty impenetrable. <clears throat> the idea that, sorry, <clears throat> I've got something in my throat. <clears throat> the idea that, um, you know, we, we do have our sensory experiences, our intuition and our rational categories. So we don't have any way of going out into the world and knowing it as it is. It's always in some sense reflective of ourselves. But Hegel disagrees. <laughs> mm. And Hegel even has a bit of a dig at Kant at the beginning of the phenomenology of spirit. He says that basically um, uh, he wants to turn love of philosophy uh, into philosophy, the, he wants to turn the love of knowledge into knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge into knowing. Basically, um, he gives this idea that we're all seeking the truth. And there's this beautiful notion that we all are seeking truth, but we, we never get there. And Hegel says, no, no, no. He says, I want to get there, right? I want to get to the promised land. I don't want to just watch it from afar and kind of go, oh, there's the promised land over there. Hegel's like, we want to get to the promised land of truth. And um, he basically is having to dig at Kant because he thinks Emmanuel Kant is kind of like going, well, the truth is out there. The promised land is beyond us, but not one that we can ever inhabit. We're never going to be able to step into it, right? <clears throat> now, what Hegel wants to do is not say that <clears throat> seeking the truth has to be done away with so that we can have the truth. He wants to say that seeking the truth is the truth. Pursuing the truth is standing within it. Um, I'm going to try to kind of outline what that means. And this is something that I've talked about a lot uh, on Patreon, other places, where I often talk about how my early work was about doubt, complexity, and ambiguity. And it was about unknowing. But a lot of people thought that it was an epistemological position that I was saying that <clears throat> there is a type of humility we must all have that we don't know ultimate reality. And actually my earliest work is a little bit like that. Definitely I was kind of in that space. But as I've moved forward with my work, the position is more that doubt, ambiguity and complexity, unknowing is not a limit to our knowledge, but is knowledge. It's not a negative, it's a positive. It says something about reality itself. So I've said that a number of times and it's central to parotheology. Um, but maybe I've never spent time really outlining 
what I exactly mean by that. So what I want to do is take you on a journey that will hopefully bring you to the place where you see these blind men encountering the elephant at a distance from the universe, at a distance from ultimate reality, to the notion that we can somehow understand and, and uh, uh, get ultimate reality. Okay. To do that, uh, I want to use Hegel as uh, Phenomenology of Spirit, and I am going to outline in a very, very uh, superficial way, a very, very kind of like uh, basic way, the movements of the first two sections of that book. <clears throat> but before I do, I just want to say that imagine, let's tell a story of the universe for a second. And let's say the story of the universe from, say, the Big Bang, just after the Big Bang, is there is matter, right? Just inorganic matter. And matter eventually uh, uh, develops life. So life develops within matter. And then let's say that a proto-consciousness develops within life gradually over time. And then that proto-consciousness becomes conscious over time. And then that consciousness becomes self-conscious. And then that self-consciousness becomes reason. Right, so that's a... So each of those are a kind of blooming. So out of being, just brute reality, becomes, blossoms life. And out of life blossoms a type of proto-consciousness. And out of that proto-consciousness develops a consciousness. And out of that consciousness develops and blossoms a self-consciousness. And out of that self-consciousness blossoms reason. Now, The Phenomenology of Spirit is a book that starts that story at consciousness. Right, so, so in this book, elsewhere Hegel does different things, but in this book he starts with consciousness, right? He starts there, and he starts there because he's wanting to begin the journey that he's about to tell the reader, the journey into truth. He wants to start somewhere that everybody can kind of agree with, right? You, the reader of the book, and what can you agree with? Well, you can agree that you're conscious, right? You're reading the book, so you're a conscious being. You have consciousness. Consciousness, all that means is that there is a subject and an object. There's a subject, a receiver of something. Not necessarily an object in the world, just something that's not the subject, right? Consciousness. And uh, that's a very basic place to start. Everyone can agree. Uh, Hegel's book is not basic, by the way. It's one of the hardest books to read ever. So, but it's, but it's a basic starting point, right? Uh, you're conscious, I'm conscious. Okay, where do we go from there? And what Hegel wants to do is he wants to outline different shapes of consciousness. How consciousness gradually develops, and then eventually how it develops into a completely new shape called self-consciousness. Then how self-consciousness develops, and then how it blossoms into another shape called reason. And then from there he goes into, uh, he goes into ethics, culture, morality, religion, all of that we'll leave to the side. And in order then to paint a picture of this journey from consciousness to self-consciousness, I want to use the example of a, of a baby. Now, Hegel isn't thinking of a baby when he talks about this, but I think it's a good way of getting an overview of what he's doing. If you think about the development of a newborn child to adulthood. So let's imagine the newborn child. What is their experience of the world? <clears throat> As much as we can kind of like put ourselves into that experience, it would be uh, what Hegel calls sense certainty. 
And sense certainty is this experience in which there is just an explosion of sensation, right? So an infant arrives in the world and there is just feelings, ex explosions of heat and cold and hunger. So inner experiences, outer experiences, just this sensation, like an immediate sensation. There is no yet kind of separation, right? There's kind of birth. So the child has biologically separated from the mother but there's still not a psychological, internal, subjective separation. In a way, the child is still the mother, the mother, the child, right? Um, and that notion of sense certainty is just the experience of not even a subject and an object, just experience itself. Now, if you want to experience that, there's lots of adults who kind of try to reenact that, you know, DMT can give you that experience or some sort of meditation event where you go and you look at a tree and you try to look at it until you don't see a tree separate from yourself or even a tree. And you know, these kind of meditation retreats that you can do that attempt to help you reconnect with sense certainty, right? But the infant is in this experience of sense certainty. And then let's go, right, so what happens next? Well, eventually, not quite quickly actually, probably let's say around the age of two, or before two, right, with six months to maybe 18 months, the infant starts to move from sense certainty to perception. And perception means the child starts to perceive things, starts to be able to pick things out in the world. There's not just a sensation of, of this colors and lights and all of that and temperatures and smells. Um, they're, they're starting to be able to perceive the world. They're starting to be able to look at and focus on certain things. But this perception is fragmented. Uh, in psychoanalysis called partial objects, right? There's everything is broken and don't know where something starts and where it finishes. Uh, how things are connected with other things. It's just this chaos, like a Bosch painting, right? This kind of like chaotic experience of perception. That then, around the age of say 18 months, around the mirror phase, becomes what Hegel would call understanding. And understanding is a way of describing where you start to see a world with distinct objects. You start to be able to pick out distinct objects, where they start, where they stop, how they interact with other objects, how they are repelled or connected to everything else, right? So that's the move from sense certainty to perception to understanding. <clears throat> now at this point in the, the infant's development, one of the objects that the infant encounters in the world is itself. And you'll notice this with young kids, is if you ask a kid, how many brothers do you have? Say they've got two brothers, they will say three. They'll go, you know, James, John, and myself, right? They'll include themselves as an object in the world. And that's why they often use, kind of, they name themselves incorrectly and that kind of thing, as a thing, as an object. Because they are starting to experience themselves as an object in the world. So this then is the beginning of self-consciousness because self-consciousness is consciousness of consciousness. It's simply consciousness that's conscious of itself as an object, hence self-consciousness. And self-consciousness then goes through, for Hegel, he has five figures. He has a couple more, but five main figures 
of, of the development of self-consciousness. And these are called um, the savage, the slave, the stoic, the skeptic, and the sinner. Right, um, the sinner is the unhappy consciousness, but sinner is fine. And the master slave is the slave. But, but basically, that's it. You've got five figures in this section: the savage, the slave, the stoic, the skeptic, and the sinner. So, what is the savage? Well, the savage is when uh, someone just everything is in the service of them. They want to destroy everyone else's subjectivity. The only subjectivity that matters is mine. So there's probably a point, I don't have kids, but maybe they call it the terrible twos or whatever, where a child is basically, they're, they're discovering themselves as a self-consciousness and everything is in service of that self-consciousness. They are the king or the queen, right? Everything must serve them, right? So that's a, that's a form of very uh, primitive um, self-consciousness. But eventually that gives way to this notion of the slave. Now, this is a historical time for, for Hegel is when some people are enslaved to others. But the child experiences this in a way whenever they have to abide by the rules of the family, abide by the rules of the house. There's nothing they can do. The power lies with the parents, with the authority. They are powerless. They basically have to do what they're told, right? They don't have the power to leave, to walk away. They are under the dominion and the authority of the family. So this savage enters into this experience of the, the slave, the one who is, who is completely controlled by the external environment. They feel coerced. And so the infant becomes a stoic. Right? So what's a stoic? Um, one way of thinking about a stoic is a stoic is someone who retreats into the inner world. Right? The person who finds a fortress of solitude, of tranquility within themselves. The external world, yes, makes all these demands on us. We have to do all of this stuff. But the Stoic is the one who says, that the place of truth is my inner experience. That's the inner world. So the child might have to go and visit granny, but they can fantasize about not visiting fantasy. There is a place of rebellion in their subjectivity and they retreat into that space or into computer games or into the internet or they escape into a kind of an internal space away from the demands of the family. So that, and this is where, by the way, the title of this talk, the subtitle is from the, um, the stoic to the skeptic to the sinner. So this is the bit that I'm interested in, right? So the stoic is the one who says, I have this inner life, right? So whenever I talked about this group at the beginning, like we can speak of my truth your truth, our truth, right? We're speaking of our inner truth, what, what is within us that is immediate. We can't know the external world, we can't know your truth, or I can only speak of my truth and the truth of my community, my experience. <clears throat> well, for Hegel, that then eventually blossoms into skepticism because the skeptic is the one who, once you really, what's immediate and what's true is your inner world and your inner experience, then increasingly you become skeptical of what you can know about the external world. Right? The only thing you can really know is your own, your own narrative, not anything else. So the Stoic becomes a type of skeptic, which I guess is when uh, adolescence, where the child begins to question everything, a question the morality and the values that they've been brought up in. So there's this skeptical explosion. You've got your inner truth, and then the external world is kind of lying to you and trying to manipulate you. And so skepticism 
as a, as a position arises. Now again, Hegel's not talking about the development of a child, I'm just doing that to make it easy. He's talking about moments within history and prehistory. Like this is, this is what's going on within the universe. Um, but that point at which you go, well, I can't really know what's, what's, what's up and what's down and what's real and what's not. And so the skeptic then eventually becomes the sinner. Now the sinner is the unhappy consciousness. The sinner is not like someone who does bad, does bad things. The sinner is just one who experiences themselves as separate from the truth, the essence, the reality. They live in existence, they don't experience the essence. They are infinitude, they don't experience the infinite. They are in the earth, they don't experience heaven. It's the, it's the place of going, yeah, we don't have access to be in itself. We don't have access to the real world. We just get on with our lives. And maybe that's the adult who just gets settles down, gets a job, says, I just have to muddle along, get through life. I don't really know what it's all about. I can hardly program the VCR. How am I going to know what ultimate reality is or whatever? All right. So there's a story that Hegel's told up, up to the point of this two world system, right? This, this kind of and this is what I talked about at the beginning. The elephant, we can't know, right? The elephant is the real, we are separate from it. It's two worlds, the, num the noumenal, which is the essential, eternal, and the phenomenal, which is the world that we inhabit, and never the twain shall meet. <clears throat> now here's the clever thing, all right? This is brilliant. If you f why does Hegel tell this story like this? Well. It's because what he's done is he's shown that, that this separation that's going on, that's developing, is not a separation between me and the universe. It's a separation within the universe itself. The universe is gradually experiencing in a deeper, more sophisticated, more radical way, a type of antagonism within itself. An antagonism that operates at a quantum level, at the level of being, and then in biological organisms in terms of like evolution, and then in terms of subjectivity with the unconscious. But what's happening is, it's not that the six blind men are encountering the elephant. The elephant is encountering itself through the six blind men, right? So, what the problem is with the Kantian position is it starts by going, there's a universe out there, and then there is us. How do we ever bridge that gap? How do we bridge the gap between us and the universe? It's impossible, and of course it's impossible, right? But that's a, that's a completely incorrect way of seeing what's going on. We are not separate from the universe. We are the manifestation of the universe's separation from itself. And so, because of that, the not knowing is not an ignorance, it's a knowledge, it's an insight into the very nature of reality itself. The idea of an antagonism or a not at oneness that we feel within ourselves is within reality itself. So all Hegel does, and this is where he kind of basically, and Shizak talks about this, he basically turns uh, Kant up a notch. Is Kant finishes by saying, there's all of these contradictions and antinomies. He calls them the antinomies of reason, where, where Kant says, whenever you use reason to its 
deepest degree, you come up against contradictions. The universe started, the universe is eternal. The reality can be infinitely divided. Uh, reality uh, is discrete. Um, you know, there is a God, there isn't a God, there's freedom, there's determinism, right? You get to all of these positions and you can't decide between them. There's a kind of like a, there, and that's what he calls an antinomy. There's a reason comes up against contradiction. And then Hegel simply says, well, what Kant didn't realize is that this isn't an ignorance. This isn't where knowledge reaches a limit. This is where knowledge reaches the truth. This is where knowledge sees itself. That, that we're seeing something about, not ourselves, but about reality. In fact, it's difficult to say, but it's like we are, we, our consciousness is the universe being conscious of itself in its non-at-oneness with itself. So all of that is the truth. Okay, now then, what does that mean? I guess this is why Hegel says the mysteries of the Egyptians are mysteries to the Egyptians themselves. In other words, the mysteries of the universe are mysteries to the universe itself. The universe, it has a type of uh, gap or separation or lack woven into it. That is part of it. Now that's why someone like, by the way, um, uh, uh, Bertrand Russell doesn't like someone like Hegel. He thinks, because what Hegel does is he makes nothingness into something and, and, and Russell hates that. But in this story, yes, nothingness is something. Nothingness is a part of reality itself and, a, and an essential part. Um, and so in a way, we are the self-portraiture of the universe. The universe is painting itself. And the crazy thing is, as it paints itself, it doesn't just come to know itself, it comes to create itself. So there's this painting, which I wanted to show you, but you'll have to look up. It's by a Spanish guy called um, Alex uh, Alimony. I'm just looking at it now, Alex Alimony. And it's a, he's a hyper-realist Spanish painter, and he's got a painting of himself painting a portrait of himself, but then the portrait of himself is reaching out and painting him. Right, so that's a very Hegelian kind of look at the universe. <laughs> the universe is painting itself and, 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 and being painted by itself. And we are caught up in that experience. Um, hence, the, the real, the Kantian real of something beyond us is not beyond us, it's within us. Um, and that's why, by the way, and I'll, then I'm gonna to come to why this is connected to Christianity and then we'll see if you've got any questions. <laughs> this is why, you know, that debate between is mathematics invented or discovered? Well, from the Hegelian perspective, you'd say, well, it's, it's both or it's a parallax. Mathematics is invented, as in it comes from the structure of our mind, but the structure of our, of our mind is the structure of the universe. So it is the universe discovering itself. So we are inventing and discovering mathematics. We're inventing it as coming from our mind, but our mind is reality, is an expression of something within reality, of the universe coming to know itself. Hence, it's, it's, it's also a discovery in its very invention. So why is this connected to Christianity? Why is Hegel a Christian? Why do I call myself a Christian? Um, well, because for Hegel, Christianity 
at its core is of course like the one the unique thing right is not obviously what jesus says or does right that stuff right or um but it's the death of god right the idea of the absolute coming to earth dying on a cross right this is very central to hegel who's a lutheran right this is this idea basically comes into being through paul the apostle then nobody really does anything with it for a long time then luther comes along and he says the only knowledge of God really is is the knowledge of the crucifixion. So he kind of gets it theologically. Then Hegel takes this and makes it into a philosophical concept. And then Nietzsche takes it and makes it into an existential concept. But the point is, Hegel says that in Christianity, you have the absolute experiencing its own antagonism and not at oneness with itself. That's, that's why Hegel kind of like is particularly interested in this notion of the death of God as a philosophical idea. In other words, you encounter the absolute not only emptying itself into the finite, but also experiencing its own not at oneness with itself. And this is expressed uh, in its most extreme way in my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So it's an incredibly interesting idea and one that I started my work talking about, but I, I think I've got a better grasp of it now. But, but, the, but right at the beginning, this, this notion was important to, to my work. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it's this idea that it's not that we are separated from the absolute. The absolute is separated from itself and that we witness this. We are witnesses, not just witnesses. We inscribe ourselves within this separation which is called salvation. And this becomes clear when you look at what happens at the very moment that this statement is said in the narrative, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, what happens? Well, the temple of Jerusalem is like a Kantian description of reality. You've got the phenomenal world, which is the court of Gentiles. Everybody can hang out there. You've got the noumenal realm, which is the sacred of sacreds, the, where, the, where the absolute lives, where the in itself is. And you have a curtain, right? So there's your, there's your Kantian description of reality. At the very moment at which the absolute experiences its own inner contradiction, witnessed by us, where we participate in this, the temple curtain rips and you have the, the end of the two world structure. And this is what Nietzsche talks about in Twilight of the Idols, which is the, the end of two worlds, two worlds collapse. So Nietzsche is actually quite Hegelian despite himself. Um, and, and by the way, this is a very Hegelian point. Hegel's critique of Kant is exactly that of Hegel's, which is you think that you can't know reality, but you are reality knowing itself, right? You, you've, made, you've made a separation, which is, too, too many steps forward. You have to go further back and realize that you are the separation itself. This then, of course, is manifested in a, in a religious way through the death of God, which then breaks the two-world noumenal phenomenal distinction. And then you have the collective of the Holy Ghost, which is the community based around an embrace of this contradiction. And all of that to say, you can build a political um, uh, project from those ideas and a religious project. So the religious project I call parotheology, and there's a political project as well. Um, and uh, that develops from the idea that, that because here's what salvation is then, the idea that the world is not one, and the world is not two, the world is not a multitude, 
the world is a not one or the not of the one k-n-o-t that a not in the one which which prevents it from being at one with itself there is a quantum dimension to reality and any attempt to give wholeness and completeness to any oneness philosophy ultimately well it's fascism it, it um, it's fascism because it tries to encompass everything but it always misses one thing it's never totalitarian enough because it can never also embrace lack fascism in its totalitarian nature um uh, always trying to kind of like bring everyone into into wholeness completeness into unity kind of that kind of liberal idea um will always fail because it cannot also include the antagonism itself um, when you acknowledge that antagonism you enter into something very very different and that is expressed in psychoanalysis it's expressed in radical theology it's expressed in german idealism um, i'll say one thing and then stop uh, the, the, this means in a way that that everything is true everything that expresses itself expresses something of reality because we are reality you just need to interpret it right this is similar to a psychoanalysis where everything the analyzant says is true even if the analyzant is lying on the couch and tells you nothing but lies right the way through the entire analysis technically they're always speaking the truth even the error and the lie is a truth so for example even if they're telling you a dream and then they, they, they forget a part of the dream. That forgetting is also to be analyzed. That forgetting is part of the dream. The forgetting is not what gets in the way of the dream. The forgetting needs to be analyzed just as much as everything else. Everything kind of uh, speaks the truth of the subject. That's kind of Hegel's point with the universe itself. Okay, just gonna see if any of you have lasted that long and have any questions. <laughs> um, Oh, I see somebody just mentioned Emancipation After Hegel by Todd McGowan. It's a great book if you're interested in these Hegelian ideas. That's a fantastic, uh, really readable introduction to the subject. Um, okay, question. Here we go. Um, any thoughts on uh, two people? I don't want to pronounce their names because I'll mispronounce them. Their pessimist view of consciousness that the object-subject divide is a cursed mutation, evolutionary mishap. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, um, no, I, I would say I don't know their work, but I say yes and then no. Sorry, that's a very dialectic way of speaking. Um, consciousness has to be an expression of some, some potentiality in reality. I would say that consciousness is just the most sophisticated form of a quantum oscillation over billions of years that that antagonism develops in different ways in different registers and eventually manifests itself as consciousness but i would agree in the sense of our sense of ego our sense of self is a happenstance right and that's the that's what gets us all caught up is like i'm always thinking from the ego from my so that's why in psychoanalysis they make a distinction between the self and the subject the subject is not your ego the subject is this fleeting kind of uh what would you say the subject is well it's, it's more than just your ego in fact it's kind of not your ego at all that's that's the point where your subjectivity disappears um we are conscious we are the universe being conscious of itself but this idea that we become 
conscious of ourselves and see ourselves as separate from the universe is a um, uh, just a kind of like a an outworking of that but I would say that the point for Hegel is that consciousness is not some mistake or mutation it's a net no it may never have arisen but it, under the right circumstance it would always arise it would always eventually arise and then become reason by the way so we stop with reason is the reconciliation of self-consciousness like new age people call it higher consciousness higher consciousness what they mean by higher consciousness is a consciousness that sees itself connected to everything. But I think what they're talking about is sense certainty. So I think a lot of New Age people, when they talk about higher consciousness, are actually talking about uh, the most basic form of consciousness. Reason is what philosophers talk about as the next stage after self-consciousness. Because reason is the, is the way of trying to, well, it's doing exactly what we're doing right now, <laughs> is to re-knit to see that the separation is within the whole. That's what reason does, which is what we're doing right now. Um, but yeah, I'll have to check those two people out because I don't know their work. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> Mallory says, I love that you used VCR. I know as I was saying VCR, I was like, how old am I? Like I literally <laughs> can't think of um, an, an example. That example must be 30 years old, <laughs> yes. Um. Okay, Chris, yeah, you're saying you think that you're a Kantian, not a Hegelian. Um, so you think that there is a separation between, yeah, reality and ourselves. Yeah, that's fair enough. I've, I gave the argument, but I didn't do it very, I did it very, very, uh, you know, not as, not as tightly as Hegel. So if I didn't convince you, I'll have to have another go at some stage. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, Lisa says mind blown. Yeah, that's what I wanted. Like I was thinking about this talk today. Honestly, right? I was thinking about it last night and today. Um, so it wasn't a Friday night. I'm sitting in thinking about this. Very boring. Like I'm sitting there walking around, not out having fun, thinking about. It. But my mind is blown. I just, it's just like incredible. It's a, it's a, it's enlivening to experience this um, this moment in which you follow this argument, and then you see yourself as as woven into an expression of the universe itself. Yeah, it's, I think it's amazing. <laughs> W-E-F-A um, uh, uh, -E says, sounds similar to Kierkegaard's idea of the infinite qualitative distinction. Yeah, I mean, Kierkegaard's more Hegelian than he likes to think. So there's a lot of Kierkegaard's ideas, I think, that are actually in Hegel, I think, absolutely. I think there's occasionally when Kierkegaard sounds a little bit like a Kantian, but, but I think, yeah, Kierkegaard's great. Um, Oh yeah, Matt says, uh, Alan Watts, we are the universe playing hide and seek with itself. Yes, there's a, I think that's, that's the healing thing. The big thing about Hegel, and, and this is the most difficult bit of Hegel, maybe there's, it's all difficult, but is that, that, and which I think is different from Watts, is that we are also the universe, not simply, you know, hiding from itself and finding itself, but also creating itself. So weirdly, we are, we are the universe not only discovering itself, but also inventing itself. And that's the very, that's a very difficult kind of part of Hegel to kind of really get your head around. But what I wanted to get my head around today was, was what Hegel means when he says that Kant's distinction between the noumenal and the phenomenal operates, he says, within the concept. Right? He says that, and it's a, and I, I've always tried to figure out what that means. And that this seminar is trying to unpack that, which is basically what he means is that 
that we are the universe experiencing its own separation. Um, so if we get that today, I'm very, very happy. Uh, okay, looking for the cues, medically. Could one say that our epistemology or tools to get at reality don't equate for the real itself? That maybe our epistemology and experience are subject to truth or the journey towards truth? This is very good. So could one say that our epistemology or the tools to get at reality, so, our, our, so epistemology, our, our, our way of knowing what is reality, our kind of... Uh, the, the tools we use to kind of know, to find the truth, don't equate for, with reality itself. That maybe our epistemology and experience are subject to truth or the journey towards it. Yes, I think I hear what you're saying, which is, so in, the idea for Hegel is everything is true, but that doesn't mean that everything one says is true. More that, that and this is the rule for him of the phenomenologist, just like the analyst, everything that the analyzan says is true, right? Because everything the analyzan says is speaking the truth of their subjectivity, even if they're lying. <laughs> um, is telling you a truth. Why are they telling that lie and not another lie, right? Why are they lying in the first place? All of this. But you need to kind of interpret it correctly. So, um, and this is what structuralism is. Structuralism is an attempt to look at the underlying structures beneath all our different narratives. So for example, you know, you've got a chess set, chess set back there. You can, you can change any of the pieces for like other objects, right? It's the structure itself, the grammar of the game is what's important. Um, and certain myths, myths have different characters, whatever, but there's certain underlying structures that make some myths similar to others. Um, so if I hear you right, it's like, yeah, it's like everything, Whenever there's a movement like utilitarianism or something like that, there is something about that that speaks a truth, but it is about kind of digging down to the structure. Um, that's why I like structuralism. I don't think I'm answering your question, but I think um, if I hear what you're saying is, yeah, you've got to distrust your own experience and your own kind of ways of constructing reality. You have to have a very strong suspicion about those things. Um, okay, question. Okay, what creates or catalyzes the universe's self-antagonism self mentioned earlier? This is all very new to me, so I'm probably well over my head. Yeah, what creates or catalyzes the That's a great question. So, you know, this is the question of the origin of everything. Um, uh, in, like, this is a way of saying nothing is itself full of potentiality. Nothing... Uh, and, and so there are the experiments in physics, which, you know, are, you know, it's not my area, but that show that if you reduce the, uh, what do you do? What's that? Is it called the Myers test? Where basically you kind of get an absolute vacuum and then you remove even more of the vacuum and then, and, it, and, it, and, it, and this remove, this kind of adding nothing to nothing creates something, right? But this is all very, you know, this is all, this, that's physics. There's a great book called Less Than Nothing, where Shizak, and Shizak's not a physicist, but he looks at it philosophically, but he does bring in some physics. Very, very interesting. Um, but it's almost like saying, yes, that, that there is something constitutive of nothing itself that is not, nothing is, the book's called Less Than Nothing because it's like nothing itself is unstable. If nothing was not unstable, there wouldn't be anything. 
But then the question is, what catalyzes that? Maybe once as God or whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good question beyond my pay grade. Um, but um, Less Than Nothing is a book that I think attempts to try to answer that. Uh, a link to the painting. Oh, yeah. Oh, somebody put, gave a link to the painting. Very good. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, could you explore, Sean says, could you explore the idea of nothing is something a bit more? Uh, is there ever an actual nothingness? Yeah, so we're in this, this is for me the difference between analytic philosophy and continental philosophy. Analytic philosophy has nothing to do with nothing and continental philosophy loves nothing, nothing is something. Um, and I think that's because right at the beginning of analytic philosophy, if you look at analytic philosophy as people like Russell and A.J. Ayer and, 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 and Wittgenstein, um, it all kind of births out of a critique of British Hegelianism. And they all seem to be really pissed off with this idea of nothing as something. <laughs> um, so whenever you read continental philosophy, they're always talking about how to circumnavigate nothingness, how to talk about the nothing. Analytic philosophers tend not to. There's, there are analytic philosophers who do, so you can't make hard and fast rules. There are continental philosophers who are doing other things. But in general, um, I tend to think if continental philosophers have a real interest in nothing. And that sounds weird. But like, uh, nothing's always been an important subject. As soon as we could draw a circle around nothing, we had the number zero, right? So before that, we had one, two, three, four, five. Zero was a real advance in mathematics, um, a circling of the nothing. So um, the question is, is there ever really nothing? Um, or is nothing itself something? Um, and uh, yeah, there you go, that would take us it, but th that's what I've been arguing here, really, is that, that the nothing, the antagonism, the not-at-oneness of reality with itself is, is productive. I'll say one more thing about the nothing. Okay, Lacan uses an example of the library system, right? I can't remember what you call it, but you know you go into a library and you have catalogue numbers. Um, if you go into a library and you look at the bookshelves, you can't tell where the gaps are because um, the books could all be pushed together but then you go to the catalogue system and you notice oh there should be a book there right the, so the symbolic creates the lack the lack doesn't actually exist in 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 the bookshelf the lack exists because of the symbolic so there's all of this interesting thing about like what is what is nothing um, and even the last talk I gave uh, last pop-up I talked about Claude Levi-Strauss and a tribe that has two different understandings of reality and how they are incommensurable with each other. The nothing is in a sense the incommensurability itself. It's not a gap or a space. It's the non-coincidence of reality itself. So that's, that's how I would describe nothing. We think of nothing as a spatial metaphor, but I think it's better to think of nothing as an antagonism within, within reality or within nothingness itself. <laughs> I, yeah, there you go. Uh, these questions are too good, too deep. Um, oh yeah, Stanley says, what does this interpretation mean for the concept of freedom? Yet yeah, this is key. This is why, and I've said it before on The Fundamentalist, where I say it's not that we have freedom, we are freedom. Now, it's very, very key. Is that To say you have freedom is to say I have a free act. I could have gone to a different coffee shop. I could have got tea, not coffee. Problem with that is it's like everything is influenced by a string of cause and effect. 
the only thing that potentially is not caused by a string of cause and effect is the antagonism, the not at oneness of reality with itself. That one thing is the one exception. Um, it's almost like if you, have a, if you believe in determinism, you believe there's a string of cause and effect, there's always one effect that doesn't have a cause. If you go back far enough, there has to be a cause that, is a, is, that, didn't cause it, that wasn't caused by something else. That's not determined. Um, you can get around that, but, that, but you get the idea. It's like language requires two words minimum. The first word is not a word because language requires a, a chain of signifiers. In psychoanalysis, the first word is called the master signifier. It signifies nothing. It, it's, it's its own thing. Uh, language only comes into existence whenever there's a chain of signifiers. So whenever I say that it's not that we have freedom, we are freedom, the way of thinking about it is we are the universe's experience of its not at oneness with itself. We are, the, we are the quantum oscillation of reality, symptomized, materialized in being. The evidence of freedom, as Kierkegaard says, is anxiety. You, the experience of anxiety is the experience of the not at oneness of reality with itself. That's what freedom is. Um, and, and then there's a, great, there's a great lecture by Todd McGowan on freedom that you should look up. Just type in Todd McGowan on freedom and it'll go a little bit different direction from that, but it builds on that. But, but ultimately, because what he argues, by the way, is freedom is the, the non-at-oneness of the consciousness and the unconscious. That, that the fact that we are not at one with ourselves is what makes us free. But the, which means freedom is never something we choose. Freedom is the very experience of being derailed repetition compulsion doing the thing that you didn't want to do that's freedom <laughs> um, no. so it does have lots of con connotations and consequences for that notion um, sorry this bounces up and down sometimes so I do want, I hope I'm not missing some people uh, Sarah says this helps shift how I see the concept of expertise instead of seeking expertise rather we seek to learn modes of existence I am interested in the way the artist and the philosopher can both function as sinners. How do you see these as different roles in psychopyrotheology? So, does it seeking expertise or learn modes of existence? Modes of, yeah, yeah, forms of existence. Yeah, we, yeah, if I hear you right, yeah, the one of the beautiful things I think about Hegel is Hegel sees the, um, yes, history is going through, as you said, different modes or shapes of existence. And the artist and the philosopher and the, the politician, the, the activist at their best is experiencing the antagonism of the present moment. And, and in experiencing that antagonism of the present moment, they're going even deeper into it and they're kind of going into something new. So yes, the artist, I get what you're saying. I think the artist and the philosopher and the, the person of action in different ways at their best, this is, this is Hegelian politics, is you don't know what the future holds. So you're not a progressive. You don't know where everything's progressing to. You're an apocalypticist. All you know is the tensions of the present moment. What is the antagonism of the universe in the current cultural moment? bringing that to the surface, allowing it to crunch and, and then become something else. Um, so yes, they're not an expert in the sense of knowing where everything is going. They more feel the tensions. That's why a lot of artists 
to be honest, sadly commit suicide and things like that is they feel the antagonisms of society that most of us just bury and don't and hide away. You know, they they feel them and they put it into words, they put it into music, they put it into thought. They express the the dehumanizing dimension of reality that we don't see. Oh, I'm just going to work. What what's dehumanizing about you know what I do? And then and then a great artist writes a play or a movie that kind of like exposes you know like Fight Club or something, and it suddenly exposes something about the uh, the dehumanizing nature of the reality that we inhabit. But the artist who's creating this work feels that intensely. So they're really an expert in feeling the antagonism of reality at a given historical moment um, and putting that into words. And that act is what, what creates possible future momentum. Um, again, I did a talk on called Social Distortions. I think for anybody who's interested in going into that idea more, you can go and look at that and that will that will flesh that idea out a little more. Um, if that's what you're meaning, Sarah, I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, let's see. I'm going to just jump down a bit. Oh yeah, Kev, Kev said, uh, can't get on board with that definition of freedom or free will. Right, good, good, good. Let's go, because Kev, I know you know what you're talking about. No matter how constrained, choice remains, even if in the mind. The stores Well, yeah. So do you want to maintain the notion that, that we have a free act? Now that, now, that is contained in what I'm saying. If I say we are freedom, it means that I don't think consciously we're free. I think our subjectivity is free. The ego is just one small dimension of our subjectivity. Our subjectivity is the non-at-oneness of the universe, experiencing that non-at-oneness. That is kind of the quantum oscillation. We are the quantum oscillation of the universe. Now that means that novelty can be in the world, but I don't think it's what we ever choose. That's that's the issue. But but yeah, um, make your make your case, my friend. Um, uh, let's see. Alan says, "What do you think the heat death of the universe represents for the notion of the universe not at one with itself?" <laughs> that's great. Do you know there's um, Ilyenkov, um, uh What's his name? Yes, Ilyenkov, I forget his first name. This, this Soviet philosopher, Shizek, introduced me to you after a talk of his, and I, I read his work on this, this notion of, the, of heat death and cosmology. And um, he has a fascinating theory, which is um, uh, that the universe is going towards a heat death, it's going towards entropy. And if, this, if the universe only exists once, it starts and it goes to heat death, right? That's, that's kind of crazy. And we, would anything ever really exist? Because you kind of have to imagine billions upon billions of universes for, for human life to have come into being, right? Um, uh, so he and some biologists and other scientists came together with this theory that the universe gradually, through this antagonism, creates right being and life and then consciousness self-consciousness reason and eventually the universe cr creates gods right creatures that create can create technology that can reverse entropy and therefore so the whole point is the universe eventually generates these gods and they're communists because only a communist for Ilyenkov would be able to sacrifice the whole universe uh, including themselves for the recreation of the universe so he says these cosmic communists 
um, that are able to reverse entropy, crush the universe back down into a big crunch, and then get it all going again. And I think this is fascinating because it's kind of the secular religion where you go, oh, we are the universe gradually coming to be able to create a technology to do this. And the irony is I discovered this guy the same week that I heard about this report that some Russian scientists were able to reverse entropy by just a, like a few seconds or whatever, they from disorder to order, and I thought, this is really fascinating. <laughs> what if what if our purpose in the world is to stop the heat death? This is um, but Shizek ultimately, you know, says that there's a problem with this kind of vision. Um, there's a talk he gave about it. But yeah, the idea is I would go with and there's a physicist, what's his name, where he has a great theory that what happens is the universe becomes so dissipated that it becomes indistinguishable from the conditions that of, of the minute conditions of the singularity and so the universe then starts again so i don't know i i think there's probably a way of saying that potentially the universe is not at one with itself so it never dies and the death bursts into something else but that brings you into the realm of physics i did listen to a physicist a few weeks ago did a really good talk and what he expressed was fascinating it was basically saying that once the universe dissipates there's a point where mathematically it becomes indistinguishable from intensity it's almost like the nothingness becomes indistinguishable from being and then he says and that becomes the pinprick that starts everything off again so if if, if hegel is right life will find a way and continue to keep finding a way i guess um uh yes uh uh uh, yes, uh, there's the name. I can't pronounce it. Il, Ilvad Ilyakov. I can't remember. Yeah. Uh, couple more, and then I will stop. German idealism says Matt, and the idea of the absolute or God becoming itself uh, imperfect, complete. Well, that wasn't a question. I don't think. There's hell, and we are free to acknowledge our condition as the working out of the universe. We are free to acknowledge our condition as the working out of the universe. Absolutely, uh, I love that. Um, I'm gonna. I think I'm at the bottom. Okay, there we go. My goodness, that was. Uh, well, how long have we been going for? Just an hour. That's all right. Thank you so much for tuning in uh, to this pop up. I want to do one on. Um, I've got a couple of a couple of ideas of what I want to do in the next few weeks, so I'll try and do do some more of these. But uh, if you remember nothing else, just remember that idea that Hegel's critique of Kant is that Kant makes a separation that's unjustified. We are not experiencing the universe. The universe is experiencing itself, and we get to participate in that. And our experience of the separation from the absolute is actually the absolute separation from itself. When we experience that, we experience salvation, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ripping of the temple curtain, the end of the phenomenal and the noumenal world, where we enter into our own non-at-oneness and we celebrate that. And in doing so, we're freed from the frenetic pursuit of wholeness and completeness. We're freed from the mechanism of scapegoating, where there's some other who's preventing us from getting wholeness and completeness. We move from the category of the enemy to the neighbor, where we're all dialectically interconnected and it's a politics that might stop us from killing each other all right take care bye-bye